Welcome to the Command Post Podcast, powered by First Do. I'm your host, Tom Lewis, First Do's Enterprise Training Manager. I am very pleased today to welcome Dr. Burton Clark, a fire service thought leader with 50 years of experience as a firefighter, chief officer, scholar, and educator. Dr. Clark started his fire service journey as a firefighter with the District of Columbia in 1972. He also served with the Prince George's County and Laurel Fire Departments in Maryland before becoming an operations chief for the Department of Homeland Security in FEMA. Dr. Clark has a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from Strayer University, a Master's of Art in Curriculum and Instruction from Catholic University, and a Doctorate in Education in Adult Education from Nova Southeastern University. For 34 years, from 1980 until 2014, he was the Management Science Program Chair at the United States Fire Academy, where I first met him. He is the author of I Can't Save You, But I'll Die Trying about the American fire service culture. Dr. Clark is truly one of the fire service's finest thought leaders, a true scholar and a gentleman. I am grateful to have him on the podcast today. Let's get it started. Dr. Burton Clark, thank you for joining me on the Command Post podcast today. I'm, I'm very excited to talk with you, especially on the topic of fire service culture. And I know we're going to um, have an interesting conversation, and I think our viewers and listeners are going to get a lot out of today's session. So let's kick it off. Um, you know, one of the things when it comes to fire service culture is that we've had some pretty big headlines as far as fire losses, particularly Philadelphia and New York. And when we talk about culture, right? Culture, we, we think of our internal fire service, our internal fire service culture, you know, the station life, the department life, but you've done a lot of work with fire, fire culture in general. And so how, in what you've studied and what you've learned, how is culture affecting today's fire service, both internally and then within our communities? Well, thanks for having me on the show again. I appreciate that. And of congratulations course. on your new endeavors and your continuing uh, journey in the fire service. And I'm glad to be part of it. And uh, I appreciate our ability to use this technology to talk about stuff Absolutely. Uh, so quickly. Yeah, just uh, within the month of January, you know, the, the whole world, or at least the United States, have become very sensitive to fire because of the very unique outside the norm events that took place, both in Philadelphia and in the Bronx with the uh, uh, civilian fire deaths right. and the, the tragic loss of firefighters uh, in Baltimore and, uh, and uh, I, I believe it's St. Louis where the one firefighter died in the building collapse. So, so it's, it's in the news, you know, it's visible. Right. So that's got society's moment of interest. We've captured our attention. For sure. Right? And typically, so that's the norm, unfortunately, because fire, from a cultural standpoint, is not thought about until either it happens to you personally, on your block, someone you know, or it is so big that it captures news events from around the world or nationwide. Okay. And the, the ones that happened most recently are that kind of event. Um, so it, everybody talks about it. It's in the news, it's in the press, it's on TV shows. People are going on and talking about it. And it's very emotional and, and tragic. So it, it is tragic. So society feels the terrible loss. But at the same time, you know, I went on the U.S. Fire Administration website and between January 2020 and yesterday, there's been three over 3,800 home fire deaths. 3,800 home fire deaths. In a two-year span? No, since January of this year to yesterday. Oh, of this year. This year, got it. Okay. This year. This year, from January 2020, January 1st, to like the eighth, who's today the eighth or the seventh, whatever, eighth, just yeah. the eighth, over over three hundred and eighty fire deaths in residential in homes. Those numbers are never talked about on the news in connection to the tragedies that took place, right? Because it happens in ones and twos, and if it's not in front of me, 
maybe it doesn't count or it's not happening. Well, I guarantee you for those families that experienced that, for those neighborhoods, for those firefighters that went there, they had that same trauma at the local level that the, the whole country is having because of these big events. So that's, that's part of the challenge when it comes to our fire culture. Humans don't think about fire until something bad happens. And, and then when it does happen, unfortunately, again, these are all my own thoughts after over 50 years thinking about this kind of stuff. They're, they're, so I see it from a macro level, I mean, a big picture, right. down to a micro level, me individually, right? At the, at the macro level, when somebody sees a fire death, unless it's their family member, I, I still think one of their first responses is, oh, God, what a tragedy. You know, God help them. Uh, this is terrible. And we kind of blame God, right? It's an act of God that people die from a fire. So we're still stuck on that construct. And then when a firefighter dies, we're still stuck on it's part of the job. They're such a hero. They were trying to save somebody. It's heroic. So when we blame God and we blame or we, we credit somebody with being a hero, that lets the rest of us off. Mm. We don't have to take responsibility for either one of those events. It's like it's outside of our control. So I think, and it's not just in the United States, that's almost worldwide. Okay. That, that fire is seen as something that's still out of our control. God must have happened. You know, something went wrong or, or it's somebody else's fault. Unless we can find a bad guy, like an arsonist, right? There's an arsonist, they start a fire. So now there's a criminal involved. But after that, you know, it's just one of those things. We just keep letting it happen because I'll guarantee you the, the 380 people that died and the, the ones that died in Philadelphia and, and New York, the fundamental causes are the same. The fundamental mm -hmm. conditions are exactly the same. So yeah. at the micro level where one and two people die or at the macro level where 12 or 19 people or 19 people or 17 people die. You know, the underlying causes are the same. And so then you get into those, then you have, that's when you have to go to the shine model to understand why is that culture that way? Yeah. And I want to get into um, those, the, the underlying causes in a bit after we talk about some of this organizational psychology that we're going to talk about, because it'll be a refresher for some and, and an, an introduction to others. And so, um, you've done a lot of studying on, on fire culture. Um, and when we say fire culture, it's important to note that we're not talking just departmental or no. fire service culture. We're no, talking right. societal fire culture. And so the Edgar Schein model of culture, I like to think of it as our human culture when it comes to the subject of fire, a fire very, and that's, that's a nice way to put it. Right. And so, yeah. and so the Edgar Schein model, right. Um, a psychologist, an organizational psychologist, right. And, he talks about artifact, right. espoused belief, yep. and underlying assumptions. So again, remember, not everyone listening or viewing um, has taken psychology. So help <laughs> us understand those three elements. Yeah, and it's not just psychology, because when you think of culture, it's, it's both the hard stuff, the things that you can see, the artifacts. Okay. Right. Okay. Then it's the less stuff. Then this. Then it's the things you can't see, our feelings and emotion. Then the stuff in the middle, the espoused belief, the things that we write down. Right. The way we behave with each other. Okay. So, culture is always made up of all these pieces. So when it comes to fire culture, um, it, let's look at fire culture in our home. When when I first became aware of the fire service, when I joined the fire service in 1970. There was no such thing as a home smoke alarm. Right. Right. They didn't come about until a little later on in the early 70s where Stratitol came out and bought them. All right. But now, but now think about this. After I became sensitive to it, I, I went back in my own personal history and I realized my dad 
was a firefighter during World War II. That was one of his MOSs. Okay. What then? And MOS stands for? Occupational specialty. Occupational specialty. So he was a firefighter. He was a cook and baker. And he was a, a bomb technician. Right. So I guess you had to have all kinds of things. So he was in the Pacific when Pearl Harbor was bombed. And before it was bombed, he was on the he was part of the local military fire department. All right. So that he was sensitive to the idea of fire and fire safety. And when he when they bought their first home in Carteret, New Jersey, guess what? One of the first things he installed in the home, a fire alarm system based on heat detectors. Heat. We, ha- mm-hmm. we had a heat detector in every room of the house that were wired together, that had a bell on the outside that was battery operated. Th- this was the highest home fire protection of the day. And he had that. Not what, year, what had- year are we talking about again? Uh, 1954, 55. Wow. Six. Okay. Right. right. It's my, and smoke alarms were unheard of then. Unheard of, at least the okay. residential occupancy. This was the best they had. I've got some pictures of it someplace. Up in the attic, they were in the attic. They were all over the place. And they were heat activated, and they activated pretty quickly. I don't know exactly what temperature they went off at, but they, they activated. An internal alarm went off, an outside alarm went off, so you could wake up and get out of the house. Not only did he have it, but all of our surrounding neighbors had it too. So I think when he got it, he convinced his buddies to get it too. Because mm. all the houses around us had the exact same system in it. Right. So there's always been people that were sensitive to fire. And many times they were somehow connected to the fire service and they, they pushed that envelope. So we keep repeating that uh, today. So, so, have- so, so going to that model. So the artifact is that fire protection system, the heat that sensors. Technology. Right. The spouse belief is your your father's belief that he wants to protect his family from a, a very plausible risk. Yep. And then the underlying assumption in this case would be what would be that 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 he had a responsibility to get other people to do the same thing. OK, so that's bringing those three elements together in a very yes. vivid example. Right. OK, right. So my and my dad. And Shine didn't write his stuff the way after, you know, my dad was, you know, doing all this stuff. So, but that's, a, that's how I can, that's how I can show it. And then when smoke detectors came out, I got smoke detectors because I became sensitive to it, put smoke detectors in my folks' house, put them in my relative's house. They were battery operated and, and now they're everywhere. All right. That was the first thing that I got involved with is getting smoke detectors in people's homes because they could alert people long before I got there. Okay. And I knew that, and I felt responsible for getting people to, to do that kind of stuff. And, and today, when, when somebody dies in a residential fire, it's usually because they don't have working smoke detectors. Okay, now that's going back to the that's exactly, underlying causes that's exactly, that we're talking about. That's, that's that underlying- exactly what hap- happened in Philadelphia. I forget how many smoke detectors there were, but none of them were working. None of them were working. Right? Now, there's other kinds of artifacts, too. We've known for a long time that if you close the door, you know, the fire has less opportunity to spread. Well, what happened? And, and now uh, we have these big, uh, what's, what's the phrase? Uh, when you s- s- close the door before you snooze or something, there's, there's, a, there's a phrase. Oh, I'm okay. sorry, I forgot it. I, for, but it's I don't know. I know. It's just, it's a campaign. It's basically a public a campaign. relations campaign yeah. to... If you're in your, your if, if you're home, close the, when you go to bed, close your bedroom door, basically. Or even if you take a nap, close your bedroom door. Sure. And in New York, and in New York, they knew that this was a real issue, so they passed laws to have automatic door closers on apartment doors. Well, what happened in this case? In the New York case, the automatic door closers didn't work, and they were open, and the fire spread. Right. So so we we know. So over time, humans have known how to control and stop fire. Typically, we don't have large conflagrations anymore. We don't burn down whole cities anymore. Right. So we've learned how to stop that. But we're still killing people, mostly in their residential homes. Now, where we've done the best work on on fire safety 
is in the commercial side. You, you can't get into a commercial building today most of the time without it being a fire sprinkler. Right. Because the insurance industry realizes if it catches fire, we're going to lose money. And we got to put the fire out. We can't wait for the fire department to get there. So the commercial side of stuff have had sprinkler laws for a long, long time. But to get them into the private sector, or not the private sector, in the residential sector yep. has been more problematic. Right. So, um, so Shine says there's there's uh, artifacts. These are the things you can see, the products. So you have to invent the idea. Then you have to get it into people's homes. And then you pass laws to make it mandatory to have those kind of things. And that happens over time with almost anything. You can talk about seatbelts. You right. can talk about child safety seats. You can talk about smoke detectors, fire sprinkler systems, um, trans fats in food. Airbags in cars. It's airbags in cars. Anything you can think of. And now they're trying to, the same prop, the same condition is going on with the social media idea. Social media wasn't regulated in the beginning, but now they're saying the social media can tell lies to people about uh, anything. Uh, any, anything. <laughs> people believe it, do their behavior, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow platforms to be able to lie to each other, those kinds of things. So it, it, sometimes society catches up with the bad side of things after the bad thing starts to happen. And, and a lot of it can be technologically driven that we're, we're playing catch up to the oh. technology, the pace of technology, technological change. Exactly right. Uh, just just uh, yesterday, I saw where MIT, for the first time, has now created a, a material that's as strong as steel, mm, plastic. but as flexible as plastic. Yeah, saw that. So I wonder, but in the article, it talks about all the great stuff, but nobody ever mentioned the fire characteristics of it. Mm. So that was my question. What happens when you add heat to this? Can it catch fire? Can it contribute to the fire? If it's strong enough to be as strong as steel and we want to use it to hold stuff up, what happens when you add heat to it? And it's exposed it to heat. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all those kinds of things, you know, so that's how my brain works. And, but I'm on, I'm on that paradigm pioneer part of anything I see that's new, just my brain goes right to, well, what's, what's the fire implication of this? Sure. Sure. You know, and, and society, we, that's not the norm. Well, and you've been at, you were asking that, I'm sure you were asking that then as we move to so many uh, hydrocarbons in, uh, in oh. structures. And, and, and for, when I first started this journey, it was all about self-preservation. I was the first firefighter on the DC fire department to have a Nomex hood. Because I didn't want my ears burned. I burned my ears one time, and I saw this thing at FDIC. It was like race car drivers made out of Nomex. It didn't burn. I brought, I bought it. I think it was under 20, maybe it was 25, 30 bucks. I brought it back and started wearing it. They called me everything but a brave firefighter. Oh, sure. Right? But after oh, sure. a while, when they when they saw Clark having this on, and he wasn't taking the same beating as the other guys, it was funny, too, when I think back, because it was some of the rescue squad guys, you know, the supermen with the big S on their ship. The guys that walk through fire in DC, mm. there's the squad guys. Anyway, they say, Clark, where'd you get that? So I can remember showing a guy the label on the inside. Next thing you know, the squad guys are riding away and getting sets and wearing the, their own Nomex hoods. And you were a, uh, a trendsetter. You know, so, but that's, that's human nature. There's always an outlier that wants to do some things a little bit different, a little better, whatever you want to call it. And, and then if it's a good idea, the rest of us buy into it. And then, and then it becomes the cultural norm, right? That's where Shine says the norm is. And people get comfortable there, and it's the normal way that we do stuff. And until there's another outlier that says, you know, this isn't working. There's got to be a better way. We're kind of all stuck in this middle. Mm -hmm. right? So we're constantly shifting and moving. And... Um, uh, every state has mandatory smoke alarm ordinances, but only only two states and a district of Columbia have mandatory residential sprinkler laws for new construction, Maryland and California. Full states. Yeah. Entire states. I know there's some jurisdictions around the country. I don't want to hear in Arizona has it. And right. And they and so that's one of the states that allow it. But for example, Pennsylvania, where the people died, 
they've passed a law forbidding state level legislation or local level legislation. Mm, the, the influence of lobbying groups. The politics. Yep. So, politics. so again, going kind of, cause it was kind of piqued my curiosity here, you know, about artifacts, belief, espoused belief and underlying assumptions. So those underlying assumptions, let's, and again, in the realm of fire yeah. culture, those underlying assumptions, there's what's called a DNA gene method you, you had explained gene, to me. Yeah. Um, DNA gene, yeah. And that's, Shine, Shine uses that to explain the underlying assumptions. And the reason he talks about DNA or genes is that these underlying factors are typically passed down generation after generation after generation. So when a new person comes in, and organization has these underlying beliefs and assumptions, they have to adopt to those new beliefs and assumptions. So it's a bit of a, it's it, to keep the analogy going, it's a, it's a, a positive mutation. It's a mutation, whether it's positive or not. That's, if it, that's if the it's trick. good. If it's, if it's, yeah, if it's good smoke detectors in all residences, that's a positive mutation. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. It's so you're exactly right. So, so how that gene is used either, does it, does it help or does it not help? Um, what, so are, what, example, are, what are some fire culture genes? What are some yeah. of the fire culture genes? Well, that's, that's, that was one of my big contributions because I say that fire culture is based on six fundamental genes. Fast, close, wet, risk, injury, and death. Okay. I'll repeat. Fast, close, wet, risk, injury, and death. So let's talk about those because that's that's fascinating. The injury and death, especially, right? Because yeah. when you, if it's part of the culture, then there's a certain element of acceptance there. See, you're 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 learning real quickly, right? Okay, let's let's talk about those six. All right, fast. Humans have known for a long time when a fire starts, fires move very quickly, and, and certain, humans can't outrun fire. Right. They learned this very quickly. Okay. Right. So if you want to survive a fire, there has to be something to intervene very quickly. And you don't want fires to start. So because you know how quickly something can ignite. If you can imagine when humans first discovered fire, they learned very quickly. Don't put stuff that can catch fire close to the campfire or you'll lose it. Right. It'll catch fire. Don't sleep too close to the fire or you'll wake up in the morning with a sunburn. Now, as silly as that sounds, we have to learn. Don't touch it because it'll burn you. Right. Right. Um, when when they when they move, when they move the campfire into the cave, uh, make sure right over it. There's no nothing that burns that it's rocks. Right. So we had to learn all these kinds of things to. To, because we need fire to exist, to progress, but it can get away from us and then destroy everything we've created, including us. So is the fast not only what fire is, but our response to it? So things like, because we know it's fast, we have exits and commercial structures, we have sprinkler yes. systems, we have smoke alarms, and then we also place fire stations um, throughout a community so we can get there fast. And exactly right. Ex exactly right. Ben Franklin's idea of creating, because in Ben Franklin days, when they started their, their systems, is to, to keep conflagrations from happening. And they had to get there fast. They couldn't save the building, but they could save the building next door or the block or something. All right. Sure. So humans have to interact to stop unwanted fire somehow. Now, there, there's two fundamental ways to intervene to stop unwanted fire. One is automatically, the other is manually. Automatic intervention in a fire is a sprinkler head. Manually is firefighters getting on a fire truck, driving to wherever it is, pulling hose and then squirting water on the fire. And so now we're kind of combining fast, close and wet together here. Say you're, you're getting the idea. Right. Okay. If in the beginning, can you imagine if in when in the beginning there was a uh, a fire magazine? It was called uh, Fire and Water, 
and mm. it was written for fire departments and public works or water departments because humans knew that you needed to have water to put the fire out. But humans were, in the beginning, before they had fire sprinklers, were stuck on the concept of a manual fire protection model. Okay. That's why waterworks, you had pipes, even wooden pipes underground to be able to put water all over the city. So you could chop a hole, you know, fill up with a puddle, suck water out and squirt the building. Mm, yeah. Right. So that was continued to, that was continued for this manual fire protection model. Hence the term plugman, right? Plugman, exactly right. Plugman. Because that's how, that's how they would stop. They would put a bung in it after they chopped a hole in it. You know. um, but can you imagine if in the beginning, so it, big cities have water mains four feet, right? But if in the beginning, humans decided, hey, you know, because sprinkler systems have been around for a long time, sprinklers <coughs> are much better at putting fire out than people on pumpers. So instead of having a manual fire protection thought, we will have an automatic fire protection thought. We will build fire sprinkler systems into everything that we build from, from the beginning of when we start doing this. How different would our fire culture be today? Water we would have 3,000 deaths in a matter of a couple months. Yeah, we water water mains wouldn't have to be this big because the only thing the water's coming for is drinking and a couple of sprinkler heads, and the firemen go there to mop up the the excess water. Right, so it's a whole different construct. So the the, the fast, close, wet, risk, injury, and death—they're not good or bad. It's how we re respond to it, react to it, right, and how we try to push it one way or the other. Well, I'm um, curious on, on the injury and death. Okay. So at I, risk, I think well, makes, I think to any, all the listeners and viewers, risk makes sense. This is an inherently risky business, at least the response component of it. And then there's a, a, there's a market push to right. reduce risk, both obviously with the things we choose to do and how we protect ourselves in the response, but also that whole co concept of community risk reduction. So I think the risk component is pretty understandable. And obviously when you think of injury and death, that's understandable, but elaborate a little bit about how it's one of the six here in fire culture. All right, why risk is it one of the six in here, right? Well, no, I think we get risk. I'm, I'm okay. like thinking more injury and okay, death. Okay, injury and death, right. Whether pe people have known from the beginning that fire can injure you and fire can kill you, right? So, that's something we don't want to happen to us. So society has done stuff <coughs> to keep that from happening. Okay. The, the, the cave person not sleeping too close to the fire, right? Uh, because they don't want to get injured or killed. But people have been injured and killed because something went wrong. So now how do we respond to that injury or death? death? Okay. Uh, uh, Frank Brannigan tells a story that he was one of my professors, Frank Brannigan, the building constructor for the fire, fire service guy. He, he was, he was in the service and somewheres he was at a military base or something that had a, a, a Russian component there and an American component. And there, there was a, there was a fire. Some, some, some soldiers were smoking in bed or something and, a fire started. So the American soldier was given treatment. The Russian soldier, the commander said, he doesn't need treatment. He was smoking. He shouldn't have been doing that. Wow. So that's, that was our, that was our reaction. Wow. Because that soldier broke, violated the rules he doesn't get the treatment. Where in our side, if somebody's injured or killed, we have empathy for it, even if they were the perpetrator okay. or responsible. Self-inflicted or whatever, right? So self-inflicted. You know. how, how would we react differently if a, 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 a family 
two small children, mom and dad, and one of the kids gets a hold of dad's gun and shoots their younger brother. Yeah, devastating. What what level of responsibility would we put on mom and dad? Hopefully substantial, I would think. All right. Same scenario, but mom and dad don't have a smoke detector in their house. Fire <laughs> yeah. starts, the two kids die, right? How do we respond to mom and dad? We, we typically will have compassion, which I think there should be an element there when you lose a lose child or children. But we don't However, hold them accountable. There's we some don't hold them accountable. But there's some culpability, no? But, but we don't hold them accountable. No, that's what I mean. There's some culpability. It's a, it's a, and, yeah, a, and society doesn't feel that way. Or the same thing, mom doesn't put the kid in the car seat and they have a car accident and the kid dies. Sure. We hold mom accountable for the car seat, but we don't hold her accountable for making sure she's got work as smoke detectors. And, and then we get into, yeah, or having a child in a hot, hot car. Our hot car. All, right. Right. So, so those, those are the challenges with how we respond to death and injury. So when you say find, fire culture, finding the truth, that, that's an element there that it's, an un, yes. it's a bit of an uncomfortable truth that in a fire loss of life where there could have been preventative measures taken, well, compassion is an element and should and absolutely should be an element. Right. There's, there's not the accountability that we would see in other situations where there's a loss of life or injury due to other methods. And, you know, this is going to sound a lot. I, I hope this isn't, it, it'll be taken poorly, but I've written it. It's in my book. You know, I say when, whenever there's a firefighter death, the newspaper headline says hero gave their life to save something or try to save something. It never says firefighter died for go, no good reason because the things were done wrong. Yeah. And I think there's culture and that's a call. Again, we're talking culture here today. Yeah, so calling culture. there's a culture that, if, the, if you die in a, a line, of, there's a line of duty death. Okay. That it was noble. The cause was noble. Right. The cause was just. And right. I, I think you, you see in, in, in your literature, you see in some of others, you know, even like chief Goldfeder with the secret list, those deaths aren't always noble in the sense that you were sacrificing yourself for another human being, which is the risk a lot to save a lot mindset. Right. But everybody, everybody has to define what lot is, you know, sure. You know, and, and if, if, if we all make up our own definition, of what that means, it really doesn't help us decide. It's just that's, relative. That's, it's all relative. That's why one of the, one of the things that I'm campaigning for, and again, it'll probably never happen in my time, but I think we should do away with the term line of duty death and refer to them as to what they are. They are occupational fatalities. Wow. Interesting. Right. Hmm. Because because an occupational fatality is always preventable and it's always the responsibility of the employer. Do you think there are times and, and this make it does make sense to me what you're saying? It is an occupational fatality and there's, a, there's an assumption it was preventable. And, and certainly in, in some instances there are. I mean, I think of the firefighters on a roadway incident, motor vehicle incident, and an impaired driver strikes them. That that's that one's a tough one to say was fully preventable when you're out innocently helping another, not victim. I don't even want to use the term victim, but you're helping someone in need. And uh, again, then I, I'm not I'm not second guessing, but we've no, no. known that we need blockers all the time. Oh sure, sure. You know we've known that we need to shut roadways down. But the cops don't want to shut roads that ways down. They want to keep moving traffic, you know. So it's these competing, these competing things. And the worst case, there was just a firefighter shot at a dumpster and died. Oh, that's in Stockton, California. That I mean, you go to put out a dumpster fire and you die at a dumpster fire. That's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. But but the, but and again, I, this it's terrible. But it's we still consider it a line of duty death. But how about the Seven Eleven attendant? that gets shot because somebody wants to rob the store. That's not a line of duty death. That's a crime. That's an occupational fatality. And we know that 7-Eleven clerks are high risk for being injured and killed. Oh, sure. So they do lots of stuff to keep it from happening. 
So it come and again, it, it's so it's, it's so challenging to talk about these kind of things because I, I think what we call stuff and how we react to it, it, it either motivates us or demotivates us or gives us a pass to really fix it. And you're, you're calling out the, the, the desire to question this, not to the culture kind of accepts some of these in some, in some regard, at some level, the, the fire culture. And again, now we're going into not just fire culture um, societal, but within the fire service as that, that you're trying to just get people to question how much we're really going to accept this as um, part of the job, right? As yeah, part- right. Exactly. Right. We, 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 we are the we as firefighters in the fire service send the most powerful messages to society in general, right? So we set that tone. For example, in the commercial airline industry, planes crashing and people dying is unacceptable. Uh, oh, sure. When when a commercial airline pilots airplanes crash, it's not referred to as a line of duty death because there are pilot. They do everything they can to find out what went wrong because they know something went wrong because airplanes aren't supposed to crash. Okay. Right. And if you take, we're going to get hate mail. If you take it to its ultimate, to my knowledge, there's no national monument to commercial airline pilots whose airplane crash. Well, I I don't think it's hate mail. I think what we're doing is we're just, we're being thought provoking. You're being thought provoking in this. And at the end of the day, the one thing that can be agreed upon is the, the, the thoughts that you're provoking at the end is to reduce the risk and reduce these yeah. occupational fatalities, line of duty yeah. deaths as much as we possibly can. Will it, go to, will it go to zero? It will never go to zero. That's not the world. Airplanes still crash today, but yeah. it's, it's all about how we approach it. Those firefighters that died in Baltimore or the one that died in, in St. Louis, there's nothing new about those deaths. They, they knew that those occupancies had been vacant. Some had had fires in before, right? They had gone to hundreds of those things before and nothing bad happened. But did they have a near miss? Did they get close to something? Did somebody step through a, you know, all those kinds of questions. We, we ask firefighters, to make life and death decisions in split seconds without them having all the information and knowledge. Yeah. So the discipline is responsible for that. I don't, I never blame a firefighter when they're injured or killed. No. It's never the firefighter's responsibility. It's always 51% the organization, not just the fire service, but the, the government, the building industry, society. People need affordable housing. Right. Uh, a, a, a homeless person needs some place to sleep at night or they'll freeze to death. How many times do we use that as the as the justification for us to go into buildings that we would never go into before? Because somebody said, I think there's somebody in there. Yeah, that's I, I think something that's that's a pretty poor reason to die. I think, you know, I, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm a coward. I don't know. But I know firefighters don't want to die. Yeah, we don't, we don't get into this. We don't get into this profession, you know, to be, you know, sacrificial. You know, we, we, we're here to serve. We're, you know, we're yeah. here to serve. We know there's inherent risks. Um, the culture celebrates some of those that's, risks and, and losses in a way that maybe is, it's not necessarily... Gosh, it's not necessarily encouraging it, but it is tolerating it maybe more than we should. Yeah. When a a citizen dies, it's act of God. When a firefighter dies, it's part of the job. If we can't fundamentally change that mindset for everybody, we're always going to be playing catch up because society can create potential disaster that we manually cannot fix. The Grenfell fire in London is the perfect example. They couldn't help those people, right? And yet they risked their lives to come do that. You know, 
so we keep repeating this over and over. We are getting better. I'm optimistic. But we, we need to have these tough discussions, these hard discussions, if we want a different outcome on the other end. Um, so... No, and and you will get different different schools of thought that, you know, I, I remember time on my job that, you know, it's okay to put yourselves in, in significant harm's way in what now today we would call a defensive fire because you're going to save some property, but unbeknownst to you at the time, you drive by there a week later and it's a parking lot because it wasn't salvageable, even if you did save part of it, because exactly it's just, right. it's smokes to smoke has damaged it or or something and so that 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 risk a lot to save a lot i mean i I always would mention to my guys is i'm not sure there's a single structure worth your life you know there's another human being maybe worth your life and certainly putting yourself in harm's way for that human being i think i think there's a compelling argument for that and it, it drives some of the nobility of our profession that we will put ourselves in harm's way to save another life but, well, but even 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 that, you know, the 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 notion of hero, right? And and I think I know where that comes from too. I think it comes from the military, because when the 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 ultimate way of resolving conflict is when human beings kill kill each other over pol- for political reasons mm. or monetary reasons, right? And it's rare, rarely is it ever the elected officials or the kings and queens that go to battle. Mm. It's not the rich people, mm. right? It's the serfs. It's the little people. They're the ones that are asked to sacrifice. And I, I think it was, um, oh, that the, um, the French general, um, uh, what was the little short guy? Napoleon. Napoleon. Napoleon said, give me enough ribbon and I can conquer the world. Because Napoleon was the first leader or general to give ribbons to the lowest ranking person and to give them ceremonial burials to show how heroic they were. And that would encourage more people to give that level of commitment. Right. So, so we, so culturally, again, going to culture and, and, and we've got just a couple more minutes, but cultural, this definition of hero that you're going with here, um, it's used pretty loosely. And I don't just mean not even in the fire service necessarily, but hero in general. So we have sports heroes, we have entertainment heroes. We, you know, what is a hero, right? And, and that could be a topic for another conversation, but that, that heroism you know, the heroism that we attribute to a lot of what we do in the fire service, those acts of heroism, again, if I'm hearing you correctly, are relatively infrequent, truly. And, 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 it, and it also depends on which, which side of the coin you're on. You know, I, I think one of the most heroic acts happened years ago in uh, uh, Massachusetts when the, when the battalion chief or deputy chief stood in the doorway and said, no more. I'm not letting any more guys in. No, but yeah, I remember that. We're Worcester, right? right? Worcester, right. So so running into a burning building on its surface is not heroic. We do that naturally. We feel good doing that. The heroic part, and then if we die, you know, everybody says, oh, they, it was a heroic thing because they were trying to, well, to me, something went wrong that allowed them to die. The heroic act is saying, let's not go into this building. Let's surround and drown, you know, even though, Somebody said there was somebody in there, but we have no proof of that. And, and the survivability profile, there's fire on all, all the floors. No one could survive in there. Yeah, it, it wouldn't look good going. It doesn't bode well for us going in, going offensive in, a, in, an instant, in an instance like that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the hard part. Or, or even if you want to be heroic, try to get all your guys to put their seatbelt on driving to the call. Right. And right. I, you say Actually, that, and I still, I mean, it was pretty, pretty strict in my organization, and it's still, it's still, it's still happening. I know. You so, know, so I, I tried to, I tried to get NIOSH. Anytime they investigate firefighter fatalities, 
to find out if all the crews responding to the call had their seatbelt on. Because if they didn't, the, the potential for disaster starts when they leave the firehouse. Sure. Because culturally, they have decided, I don't need to follow the rules and regulations as I perform my behavior, even to the simple task of putting my seatbelt on. And then the, if an officer doesn't enforce it, then it just gives you carte blanche to continue. So, so as, we, as we wrap up, what, what are some kind of closing thoughts, words here, as far as the future of fire culture, and we're thinking globally, societally, um, and fire service culture? What, what are, what are some, some things you want to leave the, the listeners and viewers with today? I, I, have, to, I have to believe that there, there are always pioneers that are pushing the envelope to try to get us to do things better, right? Um, it's, it's identifying them and celebrating them. One of the best programs I ever went across was in the early 80s. I tried to call Miami to get some information, but I couldn't find, I couldn't get through to them. The, the Miami City Fire Department had a nice program, Neighborhood Improvement Through Code Enforcement. And what they did, they put together a team, fire inspect, fire marshal's office, building office, public health, police, buildings and ground, whatever. And they would go out to distressed properties and they would fix the problem. Mm. They wouldn't let it continue. They'd get the building torn down because that's where the crack houses were. That's where people were getting hurt. That's where firefighters were getting hurt. So we've no, so why, why haven't we done that? Why didn't we adopt that model nationwide, right? NFPA apparently has a standard for you to identify what buildings not to go into. That's come out. There's, there's, a, there's a whole system of a, a, a square, a X, one thing through it, two things through it. There's a whole NFPA standard, oh, standard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or, or how not to go into buildings. And we don't use that. We don't use it. Why don't we use it, right? We have Opticom systems to make sure all the red lights turn green so we can race there. Because we want to be fast. One of, one of the one of the one of the uh, the six, right? Yeah, yeah. So for each one of those things, we can do stuff that helps us be better or pushes us, that challenges us not to be as good as we could possibly be. And nobody's going to push the envelope more than the fire service, because the other people, their motivation is not about fire safety. The only people that have a life and death motivation factor when it comes to fire are the occupants and the firefighters. The builders don't, the elected officials don't, the code people don't because they don't live there and they don't respond to it. But the occupants and the firefighters have the least amount of say in how safe society is when it comes to fire. They just expect us to fix it when everything goes wrong. When everything goes wrong. Yeah, and, and, that, that, and now we're seeing, and, you know, we're, you're, you're going to have to come back sometime because, and now we're seeing kind of an ascent of not just fire prevention, but an all hazards community risk reduction. And so that's probably something that's promising and, and it's something that makes you hopeful about the fire, fire service culture, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, uh, simple stuff. Um, we, we talk about every time there's a fire or somebody dies, one of the first questions is how fast did the fire department get there? Right. The news media wants to know that. My question is either before that or after that, when was the last time the fire department checked this occupancy to see if it had working smoke detectors? Right. Which is the more important question? We like our speed. We like our speed. It, it's like, I think Dennis Compton likes to talk about introspection. And I think today's conversation um, will hopefully um, stir some introspection in our industry, in our culture, right? And again, both looking at it societally, as you talk about, and then also within our own fire service, service culture. But it's, it's worth maybe adding slow a little bit to the six and saying when it comes to the slow part is, is to think, right? To think a little bit and to have that, that introspection um, on, on what and how we're doing things. Yeah, I, and and one of the most profound statements. Uh, this is written someplace, but Bruno Cini told me one time I read someplace 
when he interviewed firefighters that were injured or fire officers, when they started telling their story about what happened, their, most of the time their first comment was, Chief, I didn't think. Hmm. We acted. We, re- we react. Or, mm-hmm. or, 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 or I thought that, you know, I, I didn't think. So yeah. if post thing we know that, then we should be able to fix that going into it. Because at, being a professional, whether a career or volunteer, you are expected to think. That's, that's why you are that professional. Because you don't think like normal people. You think like a professional. And sure. what does that mean? Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic. We're, we're 100% better than the day I walked into the firehouse in 1970. We're, we're light years from where we are. Oh, sure. But then the question is, if we keep continuing this notion of fast, close, wet, risk, injury, and death, and that manual fire protection is the only way to solve it, we will create <laughs> more challenge in the future because if, if you build buildings, you know, 100 stories, 150 stories out of wood, you are going to have a problem. If you build now with this new material that MIT created, that's as strong as steel, but as light as plastic, they're not building that. They're not making that for fire safety. Right. The purpose of that is not fire safety. Mm. Right. What firefighter is going to have to deal with that stuff? They're not even born yet. Well, and it goes, I mean, and to wrap it up today, I think it goes to those that think that you take away, you reduce the fire risk that we're not going to have jobs. There's going to be, the fire risk is always going to be there. And there's always the need to serve the community when they're having their bad day, whatever that bad day entails. So yeah, I think we're going to be, we're going to be a a, a necessary and fundamental part really forever um, Forever. for communities. So exactly right. Because we're still stuck with the, with the Zeus curse, you know, when Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans, it made Zeus very angry and he's still angry. (laughs) So uh, we still have to overcome that, the curse of Zeus. Well, thanks for being one of those people leading, one of those those outliers and and Um, allowing us to look at things maybe a little bit differently than we otherwise would. And for spending time with me today on on our podcast, um, always a pleasure to connect with you and to to get get the brain working even more. And so thank you. You're welcome, Tom. Thanks, everybody.